Uh, I am Bill. I'm definitely an alcoholic. And I'm so through the grace of God and the fellowship of this program. And God, are these lights bright. Okay, God, I'll tell the truth. Dick said he was going to raise his hand. If I, if I didn't, I couldn't see where he raised it or not. Uh, most of the time I'm not nervous, but uh, tonight I am. Uh, my sponsor's with me. My sponsor's got 38 years of sobriety. Um, my sponsor's wife um, died last month, and uh, she'd been bedridden for five years. And uh, he's been sort of loving her to death, taking care of her. So he hasn't really been out of the house in the last five years. So the people that he sponsor have been running herd on him. And we don't we take him everywhere we go. And he sponsors a lot of people. You got some better speakers than me coming up, but none of them is put together as good as me. Thanks, Dick. I'm put together better than most of them. If you give me a couple seconds, I can prove it. I forgot to bring my my hair dryer down, and so I call housekeeping, asked them would they bring me one, and they said they'd be right over. So I took three dollars and I stepped outside my door, and not very much close, and the door shut behind me. And I'm standing in the hall with this three bucks, and some guy comes down the hall. I said, it ain't what it looks like. <laughs> so then I get on the phone, and the house in the front desk says, I don't guess you have any secu- any ID on you. I said, no, nothing else either. If you hurry up and send them up here, because I'm supposed to go down and speak if you hurry. So that's what you get to listen to tonight. So I just want you to know that I'm very well wrapped. I got a great honor in riding down from uh, Las Vegas to here with my sponsor. I love my sponsor very much. I turned my will and my life over to the care of Ted Davis, and he very slowly turned it over to a very loving God and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just the way it was. Uh, he told me to make sure I talk about the disease of alcoholism. I told him I was really nervous. He says, you know, and I got a routine I do. I work out hard. I run. I eat right. I try to do everything I can and get a lot of rest. And he said, you've done everything you can, and God will show up. And I'm counting on that. And that's just the way I live my life. I just think if I do what I'm supposed to do, this loving God I have in my life will take care of everything else. So I'm going to tell you really quick, this is something that I just believe in. Believe me, no one speaks for alcoholics and others, and I certainly don't. I'm one of them people that believe that alcohol and all this other stuff that we use has very little to do with alcoholism. I just... It just has very little to do with it. If that was true, if alcohol was a problem, everybody that drank a Budweiser would be sitting at these tables. And that's not true. There's something else wrong with me. Dr. Silkworth says this about guys like me. Alcohol does something for me, not to me. Makes my brother tipsy, does not do that for me. Let's me get up and go dance. It also lets me get up and fight. It somehow always lets me go to jail. I don't know, but it's just me. It just lets me go play is what it does. And Johnny H. says it better than I can say it, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, all his life he was uncomfortable, and when he drank, he was no longer uncomfortable. And that's the way it was with me. I heard a guy described it. He said he took a drink, and it come out the end of his fingers and his hair. Didn't do that for me. What it did was it just sort of took the fears away. I'm a guy that's always afraid of everything. I've only got an eighth grade education. You know, and I told my mom after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm reading a book. 
And I got the words in, and I don't even understand them. So she went and got me a dictionary, and she says, here, look them up. So that's what I've done over the years to get some kind of understanding of what kind of disease I have. And this is what it is. Once I take a drink, one thing always happens. What Dr. Silkworth says is, I'm going to have another drink. And then once I have another drink, then something else is always going to happen. I'm going to have another drink. And in chapter 3, this says that like this, I'm a person who cannot control it. And the great obsession of every person like me, and I looked up the word obsession, and it's, the, it's, it's above all other suggestions. It's something that you cannot escape. My sponsor says it's something that owns you. The great obsession of people like me is to have a few drinks and go about their business. Dr. Silkworth puts it like this. He says, we see other people drinking with impunity. I said that word in these rooms for years, not even having the slightest idea what the hell it meant. <laughs> One time a guy says, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. Let's go look it up. <laughs> he said, Jesus, you always say that. I said, well, it's in the book. It says, mean with other people. See, other people take a drink without consequence, without punishment. My brother can drink without consequence, without punishment. Not only that, he can do that stupid stuff, you know what I mean? Have two drinks and look at you. I don't want no more. <laughs> Why not? Starting to feel it. <laughs> Thought that's the reason you did it. Not knowing that once I take the first drink, that I'm no longer in control. I heard a guy say one time that I was telling my sponsor on the way down here, he knew when he developed the craving for alcohol. I said, how in the world would anybody know that? Just, I had no idea. I just started out drinking a cup, uh, drank a glass of white whiskey and a couple of beers at the age of 15 and had no idea when it happened. But all I know is once I started drinking somewhere along the line, I didn't seem to shut it down. And so that's what I believe is the allergy of the body. Once I take a drink, one thing always happens, and they say it different ways in Alcoholics Anonymous. They say it like this. Once too many in a thousand is not enough. I never, never understood when they said that. When I was sober about a year, my sponsor decided he was going to start a club in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, called the Triangle Club. I got the job of digging the ditch. I'm the newcomer, you know. And so I'm digging this ditch, and it's July or June in Las Vegas, about 112 the old-timers up there, you know, under the umbrella with iced tea, <laughs> making sure the newcomers get the ditch straight. And I looked at this old jerk, and I said, tell me a cold beer wouldn't taste good right now. And he says, Billy, I would never tell you that. I said, see, he said, let me ask you a question. What does the fourth and fifth and what does the fifteenth one taste like? He said, they just lose their taste after three or four, and now you're just drinking what does the 15th one taste like? And I said, wow, that's right. He said, when did you ever have a cold beer? I said, oh, my goodness, back to digging the ditch. <laughs> and that's how I learned about alcoholism from people like you. I joined the Navy to see the world and became a drunk. It's just that simple. It was in the 50s, and uh, everybody else sent their money home and did things with it. I found out you could get the cheap stuff, and for you young people, you were going to blow your mind. Ninety cents a quart. The good stuff costs a dollar and a quarter. I would never buy that. <laughs> you get the same effect for 90 cents, so why would I spend the extra 35 cents? I'm not looking for taste. I'm, I'm, what, I'm one of Dr. Silkworth's boys. I was arrested 11 times while I was in service. Uh, 
ten of them being for alcohol related. And I thought it was the Navy, and I was going to make a career out of it because I knew people like me have trouble when they get out. It looks like I was having a little bit of problem with this drinking. And so when I got out, I got locked up by the Long Beach police. But the reason I got out of the Navy, I went to Iwakuni, Japan. You can do a lot of things in the Navy, and they'll forgive you. But you can't miss the boat. <laughs> and the boat left, and I wasn't on it. And I went over to one of those houses that I love, you know, and they served that stuff in these houses over there. So I had everything I needed at my fingertips. I thought I was a man. Some of them girls told me later on they had to ride and deal with a man, and I wasn't it. But anyway, I didn't miss the ship, and they took all my stripes away from me, made me mad. And so I got out of the Navy, I, and I went before the old man. He says, well, have you got anything to say? And I said, yeah, 16 more days, and I'll be out of here. And the day I got out of the Navy, I got locked up by the Long Beach police, celebrating getting out. Had the one drink just to celebrate, and I had no intentions of doing all the things I did. I was going to have a few drinks, kick back, and celebrate. My actual mind, my alcoholic mind, is a fabulous thing, this thing. I was just I had no intentions of doing all the things I did. I was just going to have a few drinks, try to get lucky, and go and come on back to Florida. And I got locked up by the Long Beach police, and some kids said, That's well, why don't you go back through Illinois with me? And I left California. It took me 42 days to get to Florida. It would have took me longer, but I only had $840 when I left California. And I wound up in Chester, Illinois. I don't know why I went there, but that's where I wound up. And I called my father, and I said, if you'll send me $56, I can get a bus ticket and get home. And don't tell me I didn't love my folks, but isn't it amazing? Once I took a drink, all bets are off. All bets are off. You can't guarantee my actions because I can't control how much I drink once I take a drink. I'm going to go skip around, which I always do. There's a guy that I drank with here in Las Vegas, and, uh, and I started telling this story three or four years ago, and uh, he was a, one of the few friends I had at Ephesus right before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we started drinking at our old place at the Plush Horse on Sahara. They started killing people. We didn't bother us. We were just drinking. We didn't want to, you know, get into that other stuff. And one time we were drinking. He said, let's go get drunk. I said, it's a great idea. And we started drinking. And I got so drunk that I couldn't sit up on the stool. So I told him, I said, I can't do this no longer. i got to go home. So I get in my car. I'm driving home. And I got one eye closed because I got like nine white lines. And i got to get them to come together. So I close one eye to get them to come together. And they do. And I get home. And when the book book, big book talks about I should have slept for like 10 hours, but I didn't. An hour and a half later, I wake up, and I'm really in bad shape. And my wife looked at me, and I said, don't say nothing. I'm back in the car, going driving back down to the plush horse, which isn't very far from where I live. And my friend is still sitting there, and he's still drinking. And I started drinking again, and I passed out again. And I woke up, and he's still drinking. And I thought, God. And so finally that they said I wound up in a stool in a booth, sleeping in a booth. And he finally went home. Three or four years ago, I ran into him. Him and I became business partners in some stuff. And uh, I finally said to him, I said, listen, will you please tell me what happened? What happened with your drinking? He says, oh, Billy, that stuff that you and I were doing was nuts. That's insane. 
He said, I had to knock that stuff off. It, uh, that's insane to do all them things. I said, you mean you don't drink at all? He said, oh, sure. When we go to Europe or someplace like that, we have a glass of water. None of that crazy stuff like you and I did. Now, if you to walk in and watch this, he could drink more than me. You would say, he's the alcoholic. Look at this guy. This guy keeps passing out. He can't drink. This guy can really drink this stuff. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it absolutely describes this human being as a person who can drink. He will lose a few years of his life. He will have a miserable time. He will have health problems. It tells you right in there. And he is not alcoholic. What my friend had was a drinking problem. And it says he can moderate and even stop. And the very next paragraph describes Billy Smith. What about the real alcoholic? And that's what I could never understand, even in being in these rooms for a long time. So I finally got back to Florida. I got a job. General Electric was a good job. Uh, if you miss five days, they fire you. Uh, I missed 28. They wouldn't fire me, so I just quit. <laughs> We're just bored nine to five. Uh, you know, it was one of the best paying jobs down there. I had no education. I went in as a janitor and got promoted right away. And uh, went, wound up in a lab, had an excellent job, and went to work on a fishing boat, and I thought I'd found heaven. These guys could drink. I said, yes, this is for Billy. And when you come in, we go out and fish and work hard, and we'd work 17, 18 hours a day and drink the other. And we'd sleep on the way out to the fishing grounds. And uh, all them other guys wanted to drink, get drunk, and fish. I wanted to get drink, get drunk, and tell them how to run the fish company. And I got fired. I could not believe I got fired from that job, but I did. And that's how I wound up in Las Vegas. I uh, wound up in Las Vegas. Uh, got burned out. I couldn't work. Uh, could no longer drive in the state of Florida. Uh, one, uh, one time when I, uh, my brothers, uh, you know, this, this disease is... Uh, Really, in the big book, it talks about how slowly that we go down the hill. And what to me is the biggest thing, and I've heard Bob talk about it, and we've talked about it for years, but it's a really a disease of separation. And I'm going to spend just a few minutes, if I can, to get into this. I, everybody always says that, and they, and they shut up. And what happened with me, the way I understand it, and the way it happened in my life, is this was such a slow process that my, that my alcoholic mind doesn't pick it up what's happening to me. You know, when I first start drinking, it looks like I'm fitting. I mean, it looks, you know, I, the way I feel is I'm starting to really fit in. But when people see me drink, they start getting a little scared. And they don't feel comfortable any longer. I think I'm fitting and they start backing away from me. And first of all, it's like friends and stuff. And First of all, it's non-alcoholics. They start pulling away from me because I don't drink like them. And they don't want to drink like me. So they start separating themselves from me. Then I start separating myself from friends. My brothers come to got me out of jail one time in a strange city. They got me out of jail before. And uh, I took their car, let them standing in a strange city. And I said, if you say anything, you know what will happen to you. And I left them standing there. I can tell you the next time I called them, they didn't come. You know, and I was sitting in Tampa jail, and finally my oldest one next to me, I'm the oldest one next to me, says, if you're looking for Bill, he's in Tampa jail. And uh, we just thought you'd tell you. My father come over and apologize for my rotten brothers. 
for not coming and getting me out. And I thought they owed me an apology. But they didn't want to be left in a strange city anymore with no car. And I don't blame them. And I still remember that ride back across Grandy Bridge to St. Petersburg, Florida. I felt about this tall in that car. I never felt that bad in my life because my father was crippled. And he looked at me and he was just as serious as he could be. And he said, Billy, why don't you do a little more fishing and a little less drinking? And I thought, God, how do you do that? How do you fish if you don't drink? How do you do anything if you don't drink? I can't stand the uncomfortableness from not drinking. I can do, and don't get me wrong, I can stay sober for a while. I've done it. But I just get it up to here. My buddy said just like a grind. It's just a grind. And after a while, it's like the heck with it. And so then I started separating me from my family and from my employers. And the last person in my life when I was coming out here, I went and told my mother, I'm going to Las Vegas. And this little old gray-headed lady with a third-grade education looked at me and says, and she loved me more than anything in the world. She says, I'm going to help you pack. <laughs> she says, Dad and I do not know what to do for you. I'm thinking a couple of hundred would help, you know. <laughs> and so that's it. And I separated everything, and I wound up alone. And I come out to Las Vegas, and a friend of mine said, come out to Las Vegas as showgirls and bars 24 hours a day. And I couldn't think of a better place. And what happened for me was I learned how to drink in Las Vegas. I used to get a, I wouldn't have to panhandle much. I could just get like 50 cents, and I'd go write a keno ticket. And one time I won $55. I had five out of six and won $55 for 50 cents. I'd give the keno writers $30 or 25 of it, and I kept the rest because I know I'm going to need them. And when I'd write my 50-cent keno ticket, they would fold it and hand me my ticket because back then they would give you a drink ticket. And I'd open up my ticket, and there would be eight, nine tickets in there, drink tickets. And I'd go, thanks. they said, get lucky. I'm thinking, that's right. Get lucky. You can have the money. I don't need the money. I need this. This is what I need to fill this hole. And what Las Vegas did for me was it got me in the hospital real quick, and I was 29 years old laying down here. And uh, what they told me was I wasn't going to live any longer, that my body was shot, that I had uh, liver problems. And uh, I'm laying there thinking 29 is a little young. I know guys like me don't draw Social Security, but 29 doesn't seem like quite enough. I've always been like, felt like a, like a strong person because it's self-reliance. And so I got in my car and come back and I said, well, maybe alcohol's the problem. Is alcohol's the problem? Let's just quit. I'd like to tell you I could, my sobriety date is in, but boy, would I be lying. Dick could have to hold up his hand. I don't want him holding up his hand. <laughs> but I had ever intentions. I probably meant it more that morning coming out of that hospital than I did this morning. I've never been that serious in my life. 29 just didn't seem like enough. I had a new wife. She drank like I did. I came back and I told her, I said, if you take one drink, I'm leaving. <laughs> you don't understand that? <laughs> if she takes a drink, I'm going to take one. I'm smart enough to know that. She said, let's try quitting together. She said she was an alcoholic. I'd never said that. Never. Said I hadn't got enough money. You know, even when I was walking down Fremont Street with everything I owned in a carnation box. Everything I owned before I got married in a carnation box. If I had a few drinks in me and $30, 40 in my pocket, 
I remember one time they locked, they put boards on that little old room I had. On one side of the street, on First Street, was Skid Row. On the other side, it was not. So I used to look at the guys on Skid Row, and I said, if I was bad as them guys, I would do something about my life. I'm one block from them, you know. But that's a long ways in my mind, you know. I don't understand what they're thinking. You know, they were sleeping in 50-cent cots. They had cots back in you could rent. It was stuck in there so bad it was horrible for 50 cents. If I was as bad as them, then I wouldn't do it. And they had all boards locked up. I had 3 or $4 in my pocket. I couldn't get my stuff out of that room that wasn't worth nothing to anybody except me. It was everything that I had. It was precious to me. It was the white shirt that wasn't white. It was the black pants that wasn't black. But I need them. I'm a crap dealer. And I went downtown, and I got lucky, and I went a lot of money, 60 or $70. <laughs> if you're broke, that's a lot of money. I went back and flashed it at these people who had ignored that door up on my thing and showed them how bad they treated a really nice guy. And I put that money in my pocket, and I carried my stuff in my bag, and I went down and got me a room for $25 a week. I don't have to tell you what that looks like. But isn't that amazing? I was all cheered up. And if you ask me how my life is doing, I would tell you not that bad. Four hours before that, it was horrible. But isn't that amazing? Forty dollars and a few drink, just not that bad. Shoes with holes in the bottom of them. So I came back and I told her, if you take a drink, I'm leaving. And so her and I together started white-knuckling it. Now, that sounds... Good, except there's another part of that. They put me on a drug called Sponzuli. I looked it up. It says to keep extreme alcoholics from shaking. Do you know I seen that word? It didn't even bother me. It's like they're talking to somebody else. I wonder why I give them to me. I guess my stomach is bad. I had a bad stomach. He told me that. The word alcoholic, I didn't even see. My alcoholic mind cannot pitch it up. Never, my, the mind I have never sees the picture. Even now, he doesn't see the picture. I just got to keep doing this thing. And so, and so and I started using this stuff, and I remember one time I ran out, and I panicked. I told him, get on the phone, call this guy, and have him send some more. I white-knuckled it for, some people say eight years, some people say six, so I say seven. I'm not sure. But I stayed sober on my own, and so I knew I can't be an alcoholic. No alcoholic can go that long without drinking. If you're new here tonight, maybe you're, maybe there's a person in here in their first six or seven years like I used to. Every now and then I go, you know, I'm not a real alcoholic. Not a real one. You know, I know I, had, I drink and stuff, things, go, but not a real one. Because I still didn't understand the disease of alcoholism. I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't even understand what obsession meant. It means, you know, it supersedes any other idea. Once I make up my mind to drink, nothing gets in the way. You can't stop me once I do that. But I just couldn't understand it. So I went like seven years. And uh, the morning, I got up to go play golf. My life was probably the best it was in years. I had a little boat, a truck. I had a daughter, six-year-old daughter, seven-year-old daughter, six-year-old daughter. My wife thought I was pretty neat. The neighbors didn't have anything to do with me. Not only did I lost all my friends, I lost all my acquaintances. Because I was telling everybody, I go down to a plush horse and tell them, you guys need to straighten your life up. <laughs> Look at this. I can drink ginger ale and everything. All I know is if you go in the barbershop long enough, you get a haircut. 
And so one morning I went out to play golf, and the last thing on my mind, I would have bet you everything I owned against five cents. I wouldn't have took a drink that day. And I'll tell you something. When uh, I moved up in class, I was playing in a tournament. It was 4,000 first prize, and I was in third place. And uh, I was playing the best golf of my life. And I was playing with uh, the two minor boys and another acquaintance of mine. And all Roy said to me once, I told Roy, I said, look how I'm sweating. It was June. I said, it's hot. I'm sweating. And he says, no wonder you're drinking all those Cokes. They're just full of sugar. Why don't you have a beer? And I said, why didn't I think of that? I haven't had one in seven years. And they give me a drink, and I had it. And uh, I tell everybody I putt better. I don't know if that's true or not. And I had another one. And the worst thing in the world that you could dream of happened to me. I didn't want another one. And I went home and told my wife. I says, look at me. She says, what? I said, I had two beers at the golf course. I'm not drunk. I don't want another drink. There's nothing wrong with me. I wasted seven good years of drinking. <laughs> she says, I know one thing. You're nuts. I know that. I says, look, I'm telling you, Inga, I had two beers. Nothing's wrong with me. I don't feel bad. I don't want another drink. My neighbor says, I hear you had a drink at the golf course. How about coming over? I said, hell, I'll be right over. And I had four. Boy, if you knew here, and you go back out, I hope you get fired. I hope your lady kicks you out. I hope nobody talks to you. I hope you wind up in a skid row detox center. Because if it don't, maybe the same thing will happen to you happen to me. There's nothing wrong with me. The alcoholic mind, right before I picked up that drink, it didn't say, Billy, why don't you have a couple of beers at the golf course? Fourteen months from now, you're going to have a 9-millimeter lady in your ear. You're going to be trying to commit suicide for a straight month. It didn't say three weeks from now, you're going to be a falling down drunk again, worse than you've ever been. It didn't say that. Alcoholic mind never gives us a picture. Absolutely not. It's the most cruelest thing there is. It just, uh, it's like, I will feel better, maybe I'll put better. I don't think I did, but that, maybe that's what it told me. I don't know what it really did tell me. If I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is what it says. If we're really honest, we don't have the slightest idea why we picked it up. We might come up with all kinds of excuses, but we don't have the slightest idea why we picked it up. I don't have the slightest idea other than I have a disease called alcoholism, and once the obsession sets in my mind, you can't turn it off. I must drink, and my sponsor says once I drink, I have to take this thing all the way down. And that's the thing that really just destroys people like us. The big book says that maybe some of us could quit earlier. My sponsor says if you're a real alcoholic, he's not sure about that. It reminds me of a story. A guy takes a dog into a vet. And the vet lays the dog up on the table, table and he looks at the guy and says, Sir, your dog is dead. And the guy looks at the vet and says, You got somebody else can look at my dog. I really like that dog. And the vet says, Sure do. I'll be right back. And he goes out and gets a cat. And this cat comes in and walks all the way around the dog. And the cat leaves. And the vet looks at the guy and says, Sir, there's nothing I can do for you. The dog is dead. He said, Well, it's my favorite dog. You got somebody else can look at it. And the vet says, I'll be right back. And goes and gets a Labrador and brings the lab in. And the lab walks all the way around the dog and the lab leaves. And the vet looks at this guy and says, Sir, listen, the dog is dead. Guy says, okay, okay, how much do I owe you? And the vet goes, $600. Guy says, $600 for what? He says, well, 
$50 for the office call and $550 for the CAT scan and lab report. <laughs> if he had quit when he was ahead, he could have got off for $50, but we'll not like that. Are you sure I'm an alcoholic? Well, I'm not sure. Let me drink a little more and find out for sure. i got to make sure that you're the one. And what happened was I've heard people say, come back in the rooms, go out and drink, and this is what they've said. And I'm not saying they're not telling you the truth. They said that they picked up where they left off. I can tell you from my experience, I did not pick up from where I left off. It was like I had drank for seven years because within three weeks I was worse than I'd ever been, and I no longer. So now I just put together seven years, and I said, you know, we've got to knock this thing off again. And I'd make four days, and I would make nine days, and I'd make one day. Dr. Silkworth, in the thing, he talks about the different type of alcoholics, and he always talks about the guy who's always quitting. I said, well, I never did that. That's the one thing that I never did. Thank God I stayed long, sober long enough to understand what he was talking about. I'm a cramp dealer. I get so drunk when I get up in the morning, I'd be so sick, I'd go in and I'd tell a friend of mine who was a pill man, we called him Zook the Pill Man, and I'd be shaking like this, and I'd say, Zook, look at me. I said, i got to deal cramps. And he said, Billy, wait a minute. He'd go in his little box and get this, and he says, here, take these. And I, about 15 minutes later, I'd go, oh, yeah, that'll work. And then sometime I'd go in. The book calls them heavy sedatives. You can call them what you want to. <laughs> I'd go in, and I'd be on a three-day runner. And I'd say, Zook, look at me, man. I've been on three days. He said, Billy, don't worry about a thing. He'd give me the little whites. I knew what they were. And about 15 minutes, I'd go, oh, yes, let's deal. You know. You know what the sad thing about that is? I wouldn't even ask them what it was. I need to just go from here to here. It doesn't make any difference. I just need to change the way I feel. It has nothing to do with what I'm doing. So in this 14 months, I started drinking, and I'd go home, and I'd tell my old lady I'd be coming home, and I'd want to stop by and have a couple of drinks. And she'd call me up, when, when are you coming home? And I'd just hang the phone up on her. So then I started trying my best not to drink. And I drank in spite of it. Now, I don't want to do it no longer. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is what it says for Billy Smith in chapter 11. There come a time when you can't live with it, which means it's not doing for me when it did when I was 16, 17 years old. And you can't live without it, which means I can't quit doing something now that I know is killing me. I got to the point where you could no longer make me feel good. You couldn't say, Billy, you're okay, because I knew that wasn't true. Billy, you're going to be all right. I said, no, that's not true. This is the way it's going to be. I'm sitting in a bar one day in the plush horse, and an airline pilot come in and sit down beside me. And I started talking to him for like an hour. I asked him all kinds of questions. And when he got up and left, the next guy come in. I was an airline pilot for Eastern Airlines. This guy flew a little one. I flew the big one. God, I wanted to be somebody. I didn't want to be what I was. I could no longer stand myself. I look in the mirror and I knew this is not what your mother and father raised. This is not it. And I didn't know what to do about it. And, I, and you know, I just come to that point. And so sober again, clean and sober, not clean, but sober, without, as physically sober as I am right now, I take a nine millimeter and for 30 straight days, almost 30 days, I take on the front yard and I load it and unload it and I put it to my head and I stick it in my ear. And one morning I thought, your mother's going to think she did something wrong, and she hasn't done anything. And thank God I pulled it away. 
had a girl that was in the seventh grade. She in the second grade. She was having massive problems. You're not supposed to have massive problems in the second grade. And I'm thinking, I've read or heard, if you do that, somebody else in your family will do that. I've read what is the most selfish thing you can do. But I can no longer stand the pain. I cannot stand the pain of sobriety. And I still can. Without Alcoholics Anonymous, we've got lots of friends. And one of them I'm going to talk about, the 23 years of sobriety that went and did that. And so I could just no longer do it. And uh, I think this loving God said, I think he's ready. In October or somewhere in that, in the fall of 1975, there was a roundup in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my ex-wife told me she was going to take me to a dance. And she took me to an AA meeting. And I thank her to this day for lying to me. I called her before I left. She's had an operation. Uh, I make sure that she's okay. We're just friends. And I want it that way. And so does she. She took me to the Roundup of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they had uh, one speaker, and all I heard him heard, I went to all the meetings, and I heard one guy say this. All he said was he got up in the morning, and he had to watch his mother die. And if he could have waited to the evening when he could have drunk, he could have been a part of it. He could have really felt it. But he said, sober, I had to go through the motions. And I thought, and my wife says, you're always like that. I could no longer let you in. I could no longer let you get close to me. If me and I started to become friends, I would do something stupid to push you away from me. I would say something or do something because I couldn't stand it. Because I knew once you figured out who and what I was, you're not going to have anything to do with me anyway. So I just beat you to the punch. book says, we'll know loneliness as few do. And I tell you something, God, where I was just a body of one. And that was it. And I couldn't do any better. But what I did was I started going to a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't go on that Monday, and I started going to Tuesday. I just told my wife I'm going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I went down to the old Alana Club. It's across from Jerry Nugget. It was like where the Skid Row guys went, and I felt comfortable there because I understood where they come from. And I sat in the back of the room, and they say, any newcomers without under 30 days? And I'd raise my hand. And I'd say, my name is Bill. And they'd all stare at me. And I'd stare back. I thought, come on over, little buddy, and we'll talk about it. And when the meeting was over, some of them guys would come by and say, you keep coming back. And I thought, what for? <laughs> you know, you definitely don't have anything I want. Most of them were saying, can you give me $2 so I can get a pack of cigarettes? And I just started going. And on my days off, I'd spend a whole day down at the Lana Club. And I didn't drink. I'd sit in the back. They said, get a sponsor. I said, in your life, I'll let some guy tell me what to do. You know, why don't you start working the steps? Why don't you go help another one? I said, why don't you come on outside and we'll talk about it. And so from a distance, they go to me, keep coming back. We had a guy back in Vegas that just died. He said he'd been happy since the day he'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous. That is not my story. I got locked in the pissed off position and couldn't find the key. And I stayed there, you know, and I'm still sort of defiant and stuff. And, but I did the one thing necessary if you're new here. I still did not understand the disease of alcoholism. And I've said this before. I caught the disease of alcoholism from loving people like you, with people who have tolerance like you, and people who have love like you, who didn't say, you don't raise your hand and say you're an alcoholic, you have to leave. And that's the people I did. And 
I got 365 days not drinking, locked in the pissed-off position. And they didn't get me a cake or nothing. I didn't tell them I was sober a year, because I didn't figure they'd believe it anyway. When I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, you know, I told my sponsor one time, they saying clean and sober. See, I'd go to the AA meeting, go home and fire up a joint, and sit in the corner. I said, turn the music on. I always thought everything that sound better and everything a little better. That stuff made me so damn paranoid, I couldn't do anything. I went to a meeting one night, and some old lady said this. If you keep smoking that stuff, you're going to get drunk. And I'm trying to figure out who told her, right? She was just making a statement. But you know what happened that night? Billy Smith heard it. There was like 70 people in there, and I heard it. And I went home, and my wife had this stuff all laid out. And I said, I can't do that no more. She says, why not? They said, people that do that get drunk, and I don't want to get drunk. If you're new here, I did change my sobriety date because it bothered me. Because I am clean and sober since October the 18th, 1975. And so I sealed that stuff up because I know I'm going to need it. And I kept all my seeds and I put it in the refrigerator. Because <laughs> people like, well, maybe you're not alcoholic. People like me need something. And I'm not doing those steps and I'm not doing Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I was doing, I was dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, like I see people die every day in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's exactly what I was doing. I'm just on my way out. I'm using the chair for a little while, but I am on my way out. About five or six months later, I opened the refrigerator, and there's that stuff. And you said, what are you going to do with that stuff? I said, I don't know, but I don't want to do that stuff no more now. So I took it, give it to my next door, Richard. He thanked me. Come out of the Triangle Club, and I was absolutely devastated. I knew that when I just come from an AA meeting, and knew that when I got in my car, I was not going to get home. Knew that I was done. Could stick a fork in me, I am done. I turned around, and Ted Davis was standing there. And I heard he had some success working with people like me. And I turned around, and I said, Ted, if you'll be my sponsor. And before, before he could say anything, I'd said something that I didn't even know I meant. And I said, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. And I didn't know I meant it. And what he did for me was he got me involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Got me, told me, going to the 12-step list. And I remember telling him, I said, Ted, I'm not a real alcoholic. He says, tell him that. <laughs> I said, Ted, you don't understand. I want to tear their face off. He said, Jesus, they're going to like you. <laughs> he said, Billy, just don't try to be nothing you're not. Just be who you are. Get them to the rooms. And turn them over to the old timer. So that van was just gone all the time. I found out later on they had a little check by my name down at this 12-step list. They just called me. They wouldn't bother nobody else because I'd get up and go, you know. And uh, on page 102 at the bottom of it, if you read, it's just what it says. It says we go into solid places, which means horrible places, and God sees to us that no harm comes to us. And I've been in places that I would not even go in drunk. And I've not ever even come close to having one hair on my head ever touched. And I used to, at 3 o'clock in the morning, now I have other guys that I sponsor. If they can't get nobody, I have them call me and I go with them. But I try to get a lot of people to go at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. They wouldn't go, and I'd get up and go. My old lady says, you're nuts. I said, I know that, but I'm not drinking. I seem to be doing better than them other guys, because all of them other guys started going out. And I'm still angry as heck, locked in the pissed off position, going and picking them up. 
you know. And I just started doing it. And uh, when I was about three years sober, I got a little relief. I had like three months where it was like, wow, is this fantastic. And I felt really good. And uh, four years sober, my sponsor says, you know, you need to do a fourth and fifth step. And I tried writing. It wouldn't go on paper. And he says, uh, there's a retreat up at the lake. I want you to go to it. And so I went. It was Father Don Lynch. Uh, God rest his soul. I just loved him. He did some things for me that uh, no. And I'm raised in the South. You know, we didn't like Catholics. We didn't like blacks. I didn't know why, but we didn't like them. <laughs> you know, I liked them, but they said we don't like them. So they said Catholic was a false religion. They drank wine and smoked. And I was raised when you get up in the morning, you're wrong. You know. <laughs> and so we went to see Father Don Lynch, and I heard him start talking. And I told my wife, I said, he sounds more like a drunk than he does a priest. And that's what he was, a drunken priest. And he told me something, and my sponsor and I was talking about it, and he told me, he says that, I know you was raised in the South with those religions. He said, how does this sound? I know you was told you had to love God. And Don says, I don't believe that. I said, no kidding? I like him already. He said, what do you think about this? God put you here to love you so you could love another human being. He said, we got to have God, but we got to have two more people. I said, wow, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about, Don says. One person talking to another person, the triangle. And I, real slowly, I, when I went home and took that, paper, that pencil, and it was amazing how easy it went on the paper. And then he started telling me when we're going to do the fifth, and I kept putting him off, and I putting him off. And I said, I haven't finished the fourth yet. And about 16, 17 months later, he said to me, Billy, get on with it. Go get that paper and finish it. And I picked up that paper. And I never had to add one word to it. I was just scared to tell somebody what kind of human being I really was. And we're sitting in the back of the old Triangle Club, and about two hours into this thing, I look at him, and I said, Ted, I can't believe I'm telling you all this crap. He said, don't you understand why? And I said, no. He says, because you trust me. And I thought, that's true. I do. So when I did that, he told me what the book says to go out into the be by myself, and I went out to the park. I had a tough time with my father. I never got even with my father. I got even with my mother. I was 17 years sober when my mother died. I never got a chance to get even with my dad. It always bothered me. I told my sponsor one time. I didn't even know I told it. I said, my father told me one time he would like me if, he, if I wasn't his son. And so when I told him about my dad, he said, remember what your father said. Your father liked you. Let it go with that. And I said, that's right. My father liked me. So I went out in the park. I cried. I did have feelings and everything. It was a great thing. And I thought about my past and everything. It says we are about to take a step, you know, to make sure the mortar and the cement is in place. And so now I got the fifth step done. I went to my sponsor and I says, boy, I'm glad that's done. We got that. He says, don't sit on your laurels. You're about to take the biggest step of your life. I said, hell, I just thought we just did that. He says, get the 12 by 12 and read. And this is what it says in step six. We now separate the men from the boys. And anybody who can do this. And my sponsor says that at night, God, God uh, takes all the defects of character away. And when you wake up, he gives them all back to you. <laughs> and what he says is, he says they puts a real thin veneer over all these character defects. And you get a new car and I don't have one and envy pops up. And I push it down. And then jealousy pops up. And I put it down, and then anger pops up, push it down, then pride pops up, 
push it down. And then lust, well, it don't pop up like it used to. Uh. <laughs> but lust pops up, and that's what it does. It's a real thin veneer, and as they pop up, they're always there. Then I went back and did a seventh step with him. And an eight, I wrote down, and I told him, and he says, uh, my mother, when we were kids, uh, when we were growing up after I got out of service, uh, each boy, it was four of us, paid $15 uh, RF&B, room, food, and beverage. We each paid $15 rent. The other three boys would pay it on Friday. I would get paid on Friday, and for some reason I could make, couldn't make it home on Friday. And a lot of times if I had money, I couldn't make it home on Saturday. And when I make it home on Sunday, I was always broke. And I would start borrowing the money that my brothers had loaned my mother, and my mother was easy. She'd always say, honey, you've got to straighten out. And all the time, she's reaching for a purse. And she would give in. She said, Billy, you need to change some things in your life. And I'm thinking, I don't know why. I don't understand what you're talking about. I can't see the picture. My sponsor says, start sending her cards. And now that you've got a really good job, send her $100 bills. I'm thinking, that's cool. I know my mom. She'll send them back. She never sent the first one back. <laughs> he said, send her a, for a Paddy's Day. I said, my mother's not Irish. He said, send her a card anyway. Every holiday there is, send her a card. Put some money in. And I paid her back. At 10 years sober, I went through. I got a divorce at 5 years sober, sitting on the side of the bed. Been divorced for a year. My wife wanted a divorce. She no longer liked me as a sober person. She said I was a nicer guy when I was drunk. Sitting on the side of the bed in my sponsor's house at 7 o'clock in the morning. I've been divorced a year. And I'm telling my sponsor I'm going to remarry her. My sponsor's wife is laying there. And at the time that I'm telling him I'm going to remarry her, my wife is locked up in a nut house. My sponsor's wife looked at me and she said, You know something, honey? They got the wrong one locked up. They said, Turn her loose and lock you up. You're the nut. At 10 years sober, I decided I wanted a divorce. My sponsor said that we both were good people, but we were like oil and water. Both of them, you got to have for a car, but we don't mix. I wanted a divorce. It took nine months. When she wanted it, it took two weeks. She decided she didn't want to divorce me. After I divorced her, uh, finally got the divorce. Uh, I went by the house just to see, you know, if another car was there. I didn't want her, but I didn't want nobody else to have her. And the house just looked like crap. And I thought, yes. Yes, indeedy. Dick Tucson, I tell you, I got a big mouth. And I went over and told my sponsor, I said, boy, you should see that house. It just looks like crap. He said, how bad does it look? I said, boy, it's horrible. The grass is like this, the gates down, everything. He said, go over and fix it up. <laughs> I said, oh, wait a minute. Ted. I give her a house free and clear, the car free and clear. She got everything. I remember telling Ted, I'm entitled to something. He said, yes, you are, Billy. You're entitled to your life. Now, give it to her and get on with your life. Money will never be your problem. you got to understand, I'm sitting in a quarter of a million dollar house of his with a 40-foot boat out front and a new, car, new Lincoln Continental, and I'm living back in a one-bedroom apartment, and he's telling me money will never be my problem. I'm thinking money ain't your problem. Money is mine. He said, give it to her and get on with your life. And I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, money has never been my problem. Never been my problem. So I went over and had to go knock on her door 
and asked her if I could mow her yard and fix the gate. You see, this is how important this is. She's the mother of my daughter. I wouldn't want my daughter to see me hate anyone, much less her own mother. That's one of the two times he's told me, this is going to get you drunk. You've got such a resentment, this is going to get you drunk. And I went over and uh, I started, and she wound up being the best friend I had. And I'm talking about it is platonic. And it's your best friend. When I was operated on, they said, you got anybody that can take care of you? And I said, I absolutely do. i got somebody that will take better care of me than any nurse you've ever had. When I went to buy my place, she had my credit messed up so bad because she loved to play 22. <laughs> Just like my friend Dick. She found that I was trying to buy this little place I got now. I was trying to put 40000 down. They wouldn't even give me a loan. And I said, you know, and she called me up and she says, I hear you're having trouble getting a loan. And I said, yeah, but I said, I got two lawyers working on it. And we'll get it done. She says, I have a good idea. And I says, what's that? She said, why don't I put, put the house in your name? You can put the house up for collateral. And that way you got to give you the loan. Here's a lady who is physically unable to work. And I said, I'll tell you one thing. Don't ever put this house in nobody's name. But I know who my buddy is. I know who my friend is. And it was even. And it's been even ever since. And I still, to this day, because she was married to me and I wouldn't let her work, she has no Social Security. When I mean no Social Security, she gets less than $500. She gets a hundred and some to $103 or something from a union, which is $600 total, her total income. And I guarantee you, I make sure she lives large. I don't have a problem with it. She has trouble with it sometimes, even taking it. But I told her, I said, listen, will you quit that? Because when you die, Debbie gets it. And when I die, Debbie gets it. It's not like I'm giving it to a stranger. And so we got a great understanding. I'm going to tell you a little something I believe about the thing, and I'm going to shut this thing down. My sponsor calls it staying on the firing line, staying in the trenches. I've been on a 12-step list for over 20 years, long over 20 years. I'm the coordinator for the county jails in Las Vegas. I go to a skid row detox, minimum one time a week. I go to the prisons and do big book study with guys that's doing long terms of time. I'm still on a 12-step list. I'm not on it all week like I used to, but... I'm off Saturday and Sunday, and I give them Sunday. I'll take one day and give them one. And some of these guys that I sponsor say, don't ever expect us to do what you do. I said, I don't. But a lot of them do. I just started a big book study because the guys I sponsor on Sunday morning, so I'm obligated to that. Seems like the longer I'm sober, the more I have to do. I told this guy one time, and I've said this from the podium before, but I'm not sure it's true anymore. If I knew which one to cut out, I'd cut one out. But I don't know which one to cut out. That might be the one that's keeping me sober. Not only that, there's a bit of worse effect can happen to me. Is I cut one out and I think I'm doing really good. So I just cut one out and then I say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I just cut the jails out. I only go to just the third Wednesday and the fifth Wednesday anyway. I'm doing good. So why don't I just cut out the prisons? So then I've got another day free. I'll probably be doing good. 
I'm doing good now. Maybe I'll just cut out detox. Staying sober, feeling pretty good. Go to ten meetings a week. You shouldn't have to do that if you're 23 years sober. Maybe I'll just cut it down to seven. And what happened was I had a friend to do that. And last year he tied a bag around his head, put rubber bands on the bag to make sure he couldn't breathe. And he helped me so much when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous. He had loved it much more than I did. And his best buddy died, and he had nobody to be transparent with. I told my sponsor, I said, I believe today the reason that I am sober, because I've always, I've been always told him everything, all the weird ideas sexually and everything else I've ever had. I just tell him. I don't have, because he never judges me, and he never criticizes me. I could go to Tim right now, and I know this is true, and it's important to me. Maybe not to you, but it's important to me. And I could say, Ted, listen, I just found out I'm gay. And he would go, he wouldn't say, well, what happened? He'd say, well, we've got to find some gay meetings. Uh, we know some people that's gay. That's going to happen. He would have my best interest at heart. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. See, the thing that separated me, you people, real slowly sort of put me back in the groove. You understand? Alcoholics Anonymous had done for me exactly what the alcohol did. Made me feel useful and whole. I came in with no self-esteem whatsoever. And he told me stupid stuff like, put your shopping cart back. I said, what's that got to do with being sober? He says, there's a big sign there that says, put cart here. Put your cart back. One day I'm putting this stupid cart back, and one of them little guys that run around and make $3 an hour or whatever they make looked at me, and he said, I wish everybody did that. And when I walked away, you know what happened? Inside where I live, I felt good. I thought, wow, what a feeling. So it's a little bit of small thing that's built me back up into self-esteem. The other reason I do these things is that the alcoholic mind never gives you the picture is this. Last year... In October, I go hunting. So now, for you animal activists, you can, if you buy the tape, cut this part out. (laughs) Because if it swims, I fish for it. And if it runs, I shoot at it. (laughs) So October's my month, and so I'm all set to go. I got uh, taken a vacation. I'm all set to go hunting. And... uh, like four or five days before the season starts, a lady calls me and says, you know, um, don't forget you got that workshop on sponsorship Saturday. I said, no, wait a minute. Not in October. I never make dates in the first of October. She said, well, we'll get somebody else. I said, nope, wait a minute. I'm not allowed to do that. Once I make a commitment, I have to keep it. So I said, I'll show up. So I said, then I'll go Sunday. So my good friend Valerie called me. And says, your good friend Dick Susan is separating 35 years sobriety on Sunday. And we would love to have you there. I'm going, all right. I'll be there. And it was a pleasure being there. I said, okay, I'll leave Monday. See, my alcoholic mind can't pick up the picture of what's happening, right? I think God's mad at me. For you guys that hunt quail, you know the first two days is a day. Because the birds are still dumb, you know. And I'm not a good shot anyway. But after they've been shot out, they get smarter than hell. So I'm thinking they're going to be so smart by the time I get there, I ain't getting nothing, right? I don't know what kind of trick you're playing, but it's not very funny. 
So I go to this birthday party, which I'm thrilled to death that I did, and I come home and my phone rings, and it's one of these idiots that I sponsor saying that he is in serious shape and he needs to talk to me at least three or four hours Monday. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm leaving Saturday, Monday I'm still here. So I said, okay, get up early and we'll go. And uh, Monday afternoon I ran down to Nelson's Landing with the old dog, and we went down and we did pretty good in the afternoon. And I come home and I'll jump in bed early and I'll leave early Tuesday. Now, you see, if I had it my way, I would have left on Saturday. I still go to the detox center, and when I pick up a guy, this is what I'd say to him. Do you smoke? And they always go, yes. And I go get them a couple packs of cigarettes. I used to get them one, but now I buy them two because they smoke the first pack in about four and a half minutes because they ain't had one in about seven days. <laughs> then I ask them the magic question. Are you hungry? And they always go, yes. I said, come on, let's go get something to eat. So I come back from this hunting trip. I jump in bed. And about 10 o'clock, my phone rings. On the other end, I have a 30-year-old daughter who's been doing this thing for 18 years, living in the streets. One time she come home and she looked at me and she says, can I come in and take a shower? And she says, I haven't had a shower in about five days. And I said, Debbie, you look absolutely horrible. She weighed about 80, 85 pounds. And uh, I used to tell everybody it's not that bad. And she came in and she took a shower and she went in and she says, is it okay if I go to the refrigerator? And I said, yeah, go ahead. I watched her eat four times in like an hour and a half. And I said, you know, you can't stay here. She says, I know. She says, Dad, I'm living in the back of pickup. We got a mattress in there and it's not that bad. I thought, right. It's not that bad, honey. That mattress makes all the difference in the world. Right? The alcoholic mind's not that bad. So at 10 o'clock tonight, the phone rings, and it's my daughter. This is last October. She said, Did I need help? I said, Oh, I know that. <laughs> she said, No, I need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Yeah, I know that too. But I said, I'll tell you something, honey. I can't help you. You'll get your help the same place that I got mine from, a total stranger. But I said, Give me your phone number. Because I know some people that will help you. So I called this friend of mine whose wife's got 11 years and the other girl's got 10 years, Denise and Doran. And they went and picked her up. And guess what they said to her? When's the last time you eat? She says, I don't remember. She says, have you got any cigarettes? And Debbie says, no, and I don't have any money either. They said, hell, we know that. And they took her to 7-Eleven and bought her two packs of cigarettes. And I told my sponsor, thank God there's other people out there doing the same thing I'm doing. Now, see, if Saturday when they called and told me about the sponsorship and when Valerie called me and told me about the thing, if God would have said, listen, I've got to hold you here a little bit, I've got a thing for you. So then uh, she come and they called and I took her down to the ABC Club in California. And uh, she stayed sober a hundred and some days. And people ask me now, How's she doing? I tell them simply this. She's not going to meetings. But she stayed sober for some. But I would have missed the whole thing if I'd have had my way about it. So what i got to do is i just got to keep doing it. And sometimes it feels doesn't feel good doing it. I get disconnected in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that has nothing to do with nothing. I just keep doing it. And when something comes down, I just double up on my meetings. I know where the newcomers are, but they're always broke. 
You know, so I got to put money in my pocket when I go down there. A lot of guys do that. The book says some of us become misers. I hope I never do that. My God is the greatest paymaster in the world. And I said that, and one guy says, you know, and, and the givers get it all. And I said that, and this guy said, well, if I had what he had, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the money. I'll give you the most precious thing I got, the same thing my sponsor gave me, and that's my time. I'll give you my time, hours of it. Dick Tucson and these guys give me hours of their time. And so that's what Alcoholics Anonymous and they've done. In the 12 or 12, it says, simply says this. We have a set of principles, spiritual by nature, which will exclude the desire to drink, which will push away the desire to drink and make us happy, useful, and whole. One quick story, and I'm done. I tell this story in honor of my father. You won't hear this from nobody else. I got this from my dad. I started telling it. I was at, speaking at a conference in um, Utah, and I was at a racetrack, and I, the conference was at a racetrack, and I thought of the story. In North Carolina, where I'm from, they have a race every year, and it's like 13, 14, 15-year-old kids. And the winner of that race is like king for a year, and it's the biggest thing in that area. They all bring their best horses. And all the fathers are in the winning circle except one. One father's back at the barn. And the guy in the barn says, why aren't you out in the winning circle with all the rest of the fathers? And the father looked at the man and says, listen, if my son wins this race, he won't need me. But if he loses, I want to be here for him. And I'm glad you were here for me when I got here. Thank you very much.